What's going on, lads? Welcome to another installment of Man Talk on the Positive Masculinity Podcast. We cover topics ranging from mental health, fitness, diet, nutrition, and sleep, all the way through to relationships, emotions, networking, mateships, and goal setting. Traditional masculinity is one of the most powerful, beneficial, and valuable forces there is on the face of the earth, and it is being completely misrepresented and destroyed in today's society. So, it is my mission to bring masculinity back into our world to improve the lives of men, women, and society as a whole. Now, I have some super, super exciting news. I've recently launched a brand new network called The Men's Inner Circle, where once a week, every Wednesday morning, we jump on a video call and we discuss everything ranging from mental health, physical health, finances, nutrition, and sleep, through to relationships, networking, emotions, goal setting, and accountability. So, if this powerful network is something you want to be a part of, you can click the link in the show description or jump onto www.bettermindsbody.com.au forward slash the men's inner circle. With that being said, let's dive into today's installment of Man Talk. Lads, today we've got an epic guest. His name is Terry Tucker. He is an ex-college basketballer. He worked in the corporate field for a bit of time, then changed over into the police force and worked as a SWAT hostage negotiator. Epic job. He then started a business, became an author in 2020, and has been battling a rare form of cancer for the last 11 years. Terry has an incredible story, a lot of incredible things to share with us. Man, thanks for coming on. I appreciate your time. Do you want to give us a bit more of an intro and a background on yourself, man? Sure. Well, Nick, thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Yeah. Um... I am from the United States. I'm the oldest of three boys. You can't tell this from looking at me, but I'm six foot eight inches tall and actually went to college on a basketball scholarship. When I graduated from college, I moved home to find a job. I'm, I'm really going to date myself now, but this is long before the internet was available to help <laughs> people find employment. Uh, fortunately, I was able to find that first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain in their marketing department. Unfortunately, I lived with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my father and my grandmother, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. Uh, professionally, as I said, started out in marketing at Wendy's, became a hospital administrator after that, then made a major pivot in my life and became a police officer. And part of the work I did in law enforcement was I was a SWAT team hostage negotiator. After my law enforcement career, started a school security consulting business, Coach girls high school basketball, became an author in 2020, but for the last 11 years now, I've been battling a rare form of cancer. And then I guess just finally, my wife and I have been married for 30 years. We have one child, a daughter, who's in the military here in the United States. Yeah, well, man, such a decorated life so far. It's pretty awesome. Um, in terms of, I guess we'll start from the beginning, like your college basketball career how was that what did you learn and what were the experiences that you kind of came across throughout that yeah i think one of the things one of the most important things that i learned from playing team sports and for me it was sports i think it can be whatever team you're on i mean whether it's your colleagues or you know your the people you hang out with your family whatever it is one of the mm. things i learned from team sports is the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself you know, you realize on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, et cetera. And if you think about it, the, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. So that was one of the really big things that I learned. 
I had three knee surgeries in high school. I had one in college. And, and that certainly taught me the value, you know, of, of persistence, of resiliency, of, of callousing your mind, of, of dealing, you know, with the things in your mind so that your, your body can operate uh, efficiently and effectively. And so I, I learned from a very early age to sort of control the, the negative thoughts that were being put into my mind through fighting back from all those knee surgeries and things like that. So those are two pretty big things I think I learned. Mm part of a team yeah they're massive and in terms of i guess like having that bigger purpose that's something a lot of people i've had on the show i've spoken about if you have a purpose that's outside of yourself that involves other people or a a bigger goal then you're generally living a pretty fulfilling life and i think that yeah you've nailed it like sport brings that out of you because it's not about you it is about the team so that's such a good point when you said callousing your mind you've said it a couple times Obviously, David Goggins is massive on that. How do you suggest people can start callousing their mind if they're not part of a sports team or if they're not going through, I guess, big challenges? I, I, I think it's it's pretty simple, but it's kind of hard because our brains are hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and to seek pleasure. So to mm. the brain, you know, the status quo, the way things are right now, hey, it's comfortable and familiar and just leave it alone. But the only way we're going to grow, the only way we're going to get better, the only way we're going to improve is if we step outside those comfort zones and do things that make us uncomfortable. And and I totally agree with Goggins. What, what Goggins says and what I try to do every day of my life is do one thing that scares you, that makes you nervous, that makes you uncomfortable, that that is potentially embarrassing. It doesn't have to be a big thing. But if you do those things every day, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to get up early, get up early. I don't want to clean the house, clean the house. I don't want to study for that test, study for that test. I don't want to go to the gym, go to the gym. Do the things that you don't want to do, because if you do those little things every day, when the big disasters in life hit us, and they hit all of us, we lose somebody who's close to us, we get let go from our job, we find out we have a chronic or a terminal illness, you'll be so much more resilient to handle that pain when it presents itself. That's it. It's preparation because inevitably shit's going to hit the fan at some point. If it doesn't, then you're not living in this reality. But if you can do something every day, whether it's anywhere from a cold shower to an ultra marathon like Goggins, then you are preparing yourself for the pitfalls of life that are inevitably coming, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So moving on then to your law enforcement career and being in the SWAT team, that obviously would have been pretty pretty gnarly. What was that like? What did you learn being a part of that? Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that I that I talk about that I learned from the SWAT team, that when, when I first started as a negotiator, they gave us this formula. And the formula was 7-38-55. And that formula had to do with how we communicate with each other. So if you and I are talking... My message, 7% of it is going to be the words that I use. 38% of it is going to be the tone of voice that I take or that I use to say those words. And then 55% of it is my body language and my facial expressions. So as a police officer, 99% of what I did was face-to-face with another individual. So you know, if I responded on a radio run and and you and I were talking and and I noticed that you were kind of, you know, looking around, maybe I was thinking, well, you know, I can see he's looking around, maybe he's going to run. 
Or, you know, if you're standing there balling up your fists, maybe you want to fight me. And so I can see those things. I can take those visual clues and I can do what's appropriate. I can handcuff you. I can sit you down. I can put you in my car, whatever was appropriate for why I was there. But as negotiators, I didn't have that 55%. All I had was what the person was saying and the tone of voice that they were using because we weren't with the person who was barricaded, you know, or had taken hostages. We could be blocks away. We could be, you know, on the other side of a locked door. So we had to figure things out based on what people were saying, what they weren't saying, and how they were saying it. And, and the overarching point of being a negotiator is to develop trust. We call it tactical empathy. But, you know, I mean, I'm trying to develop a relationship with you, a person that I've never met, who's in a crisis situation, and to try to get you out safely. Now, you know, it, it's the same thing as a relationship between a parent or a child or a husband or a wife or a, you know, a boss or a subordinate. You, you know, yeah, you tell me to do something. Do I trust you? Do I think you're a person of your word? And mm -hmm. we're trying to do that, you know, having never met this person and being the police, you know, which a lot of times is not helpful in a lot of ways. So mm -hmm. when I would start, it would be like, you know, hey, Nick, I'm Terry. You know, I wouldn't say, hey, I'm Sergeant Tucker, or, you know, or I'm a policeman. Yeah. It would just be, you know, we're trying to we're trying to relate as human beings, not as a policeman and, you know, somebody who's in crisis. So those are some yeah. of the things that we learned. And I guess the last thing I'll say is the other thing we learned is the importance of listening. And I'm sure your audience is going to be like, well, of course, dummy, you know, listening is very <laughs> important. But it's it, it, it's it's listening to understand versus mm. listening to respond. Not like, all right, Nick, hurry up, say what you're going to say, because I want to get my two cents in. That's listening to respond versus, okay, Nick, I, I hear what you're saying. I may agree with you. I may not agree with you, but help me to understand where you're coming from. That's listening to understand. Mm. And if we would do that more, I think we'd get, we'd get along with each other a whole lot better. Yeah, oh, 100%. And man, you can tell when someone's listening to respond. You can pick up on it and it's it's so frustrating. Like personally, yeah, I can pick up on it straight away. So, when you were negotiating, you spoke about that tactical empathy. I'm interested to know, did you actually form a relationship with that person and actually try to understand their perspective or was it purely just to, I guess, protect the people in danger? No, we really, tactical empathy was about understanding what was going on. And, and here's, the, here's the point about that. It was understanding, not agreeing with. You know, so if, mm -hmm. if we were negotiating with somebody who just killed two people, you know, I'm not going to sit here and try to, you know, justify why you did what you did. But I want to yeah. understand it because if I understand it, and, and part of what we would do is we would let you talk. And then when you finish talking, we would pair it back or respond with like the last three words that you said or the most important words that you said, you know, so like, like I just said that, and, and we would do it with a curious voice, you know, part of being a good negotiator is being curious and we mm. stayed away from why questions. So like, for example, Nick, if I said to you, well, Nick, why did you do that? That sounds accusatory. That sounds like I'm, I'm judging you or, or trying to accuse you of something. So we would go more with, well, what got us to this point, Nick? Or how did we get here, Nick? Or something like that. So we would use how and what mm. questions for two reasons. One, because if I'm using a how question or a what question, I'm engaging you to help me 
get you out safely. And you don't even realize that I'm doing that with those questions. And the other thing is, is it's not accusatory. It's more, hey, let's just have a conversation with it. So there were all kinds of tactics we used. But yes, we were absolutely trying to understand what got us to this point. And and a lot of times we didn't know. We didn't know why you barricaded yourself or why you took hostages. We, we had no idea. So that was mm. the other part of trying to figure this whole thing out. It was it's like putting together a giant jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, 100%. That would be such a hectic job. So now moving forwards and just your life as a man outside of your career, your sporting career and all that stuff, has it taught you how to communicate better with people in your life and how to, I guess, connect and understand people a bit better? It, it is. And, and as, as I've gotten older, and I, I am much older than you, you, you know, we tend to take people on their word. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but I'm much more of a person that will make sure that you walk the walk in addition to talking the talk. I mean, there's a lot of people that, you know, I'm a, I'm a virtuous guy. I'm a strong guy. I'm a, a man of character. And then they go out and talk behind somebody's back, you know, badly about them or something like that. And it's like, eh, okay, are you really a person of character? So for me, it's, I, I, I've learned to listen to what you're saying, but then watch how you act. You know, do you treat people the way I would want to treat people? I'll, I'll give you a quick story uh, about character. I, I had a job interview for a marketing position, and I met with the senior vice president. And we talked for 90 minutes, for an hour and a half. And in that entire time, he never asked me one question about marketing or business or my philosophy on advertising. Nothing. Nothing about business. He asked me what it was like growing up in my family, what it was like in high school, you know, playing basketball, having knee surgery, going to college. Mm. And I, I remember afterwards asking him, I said, you know, you didn't ask me one question about this job that I'm supposedly applying for. Can, can you help me understand your line of question? And he said, sure. He said, I got plenty of people around me that will tell me whether you're good at marketing or whether you would be a good fit for our team. But he said, what I want to hire are people of good character. And he said, I believe character is taught in the first 20 years of your life. So that's why I asked you basically what your life was like up until you graduated from college. And he, he threw in another thing that I thought was interesting. He said, I believe character is caught, not taught. So, you know, you're not going to read a book or take mm. a class and say, okay, I took in this class, I've taken this class, now a person of good character. No, you're going to watch how people operate and say, you know, boy, I didn't like the way that guy did that. Or, oh man, that woman handled that really well. I like that. So character is more of looking at how people do things and say, yeah, th that fits in with my values. And so I want to be like that. Or I want to put that, you know, in place in my life. And I don't think that's something that people think a lot about. We, we, a lot of times we mm. think about, you know, life is all about us. It's all about me. It's really not about you. It's about us collect. I used to tell my players all the time, you're unique, but you're not special. So, yeah. you know, get that. I'm, I'm a special, you know, you got to treat me. I, I'm, I'm treating, you're a team. You, you have unique gifts yeah. and talents, but you're not special. So get rid of that special thing right now and we'll figure out how we can come together as a team. 100% man agreed I, that's such a good point on character character literally character development is the first part of my coaching program I think it's the cornerstone of everything and 
I reckon if you ask 90% of young dudes under the age of 25, what is your character like? Like list it out. They wouldn't be able to tell you. Um, yes, I definitely agree. Most of it is taught or caught before your 20s, but also think you can build it and you build it through doing, right? You go out and say, I want to do X, Y, Z. And then, like you said, you walk the walk. If you want to yeah. become someone who's disciplined, well, sweet. You say you're disciplined, now go and do it. Show me. Like set yourself a task and do it every fucking day for the next two weeks. And I think if you can start to do that in every aspect of your, I guess, personality or life, that's when you can start building a really cool character. I, I agree. And, and I think, you know, just to add on to that, I think the other part of that is understanding or knowing what your values are in life. Mm. You know, we, we talk a lot about goals. You know, everybody's got goals. You know, I, I'm going to make New Year's resolutions. I'm going to do all that kind of stuff. But the, I think the reason so many goals fail and, and new, most New Year's resolutions go by the wayside by February of, of every year is because people don't know what their values are. If you can tie your goals to values, something you know that's that's immovable, you know, that that's that's like a foundation that you know in your heart, in your soul, this is who I am. This is something I'm not willing to waver on or compromise on or anything like that. And then you tie your goals to those. Then you then they've got an anchor. They've got someplace mm. you know that they can hang on to, as opposed to oh, I'm just throwing goals out there, and and maybe I'll make one or or two, and but the rest of them are going to go by the wayside because one, you're not a person of good character, and two, you have no idea what your values are. And you need that. So there's it's going to get hard at some point because, as I said, shit inevitably hits the fan, and when it gets hard, like you said, we're going to go for comfort. Right, we're wired for the easy route. We're wired for comfort. So as soon as it gets hard, if you don't have those values, you don't have a why per se, then you're going to run. And exactly, that's exactly why those New Year's resolutions always fail. Yeah, there's a, there's a great video if you can find it online. Uh, it's a woman by the name of Kara Lawson, and she's the women's basketball coach at Duke University in North Carolina here in the United States. And she gives a whole talk about doing hard better you know how especially young people it's, yeah. it's like you know, gosh if i can just get through freshman year in high school then you know things will get easier and and the whole point of her her conversation is things never get easier you just handle hard better you learn mm. how to handle hard better you know y'all you know oh if i can make it you know through high school oh things will get easier things never get easier you just get better at handling hard mm. things yeah, that's a really good point, bro. And I think also choosing your hard as well because life's going to be hard and like it's a stereotype, but you can either take the easy route now, you can mess around, have fun, not pursue any ambitions, not save money, and then the the rest of your life's going to be hard or you can work on that business now, you can work out now, you can train really hard, eat well, and then that might be hard now. But the rest of your life is set up. You're in good shape. You got a callous mind, like you said. You got your business. You got all these things. So it's about choosing your hard too, because it's always going to be hard. Yeah, and that separates the. You know, the the there was a football player here in the United States, an American football player, who used to say, "Today I will do what others won't, so that tomorrow I can do what others can't." And 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 that's exactly what you're saying. You know, I, are you going to do the hard things today? Because if you don't, somebody else is going to do that. And, 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 you know, we all see people that are successful, whether it's in sports or entertainment or music or business or medicine or whatever it is. And we think somehow those people got successful 
by never failing, by never making mistakes. And I think the road to success is paved with failure, but we never see that. You know, I, I mentioned my daughter. My daughter uh, played college basketball as well and, and was very good. She's six foot two and, and had an NBA three point shooting range. But what people never saw were all those days in the gym, you know, the hot, sweaty, you know, humid gym, putting up thousands and thousands and thousands of shots every day to get mm -hmm. good. No, they just saw her on the court during a game. They, you know, you don't see all the practice, all the effort, all the, the study that goes in to being good at something. 100%. You couldn't have said it better. You see all the, you know, the, the Kobe Bryants and all the people at the top and you think they they just made it. They, they're lucky. They're elite. But there's so many failures behind them. Like I've, I've trialed and tested four or five businesses before my coaching business. I'm starting to get some traction with this one, but no one sees the failures. Like I played AFL you over in the States for all the listeners that don't know what that is, but it's an Australian sport and played at, I guess, the equivalent of college level. But I got knocked back from four or five teams over six years before that. Like people don't see all of the failures, all the setbacks before, I guess, the person's limelight of success. Yeah, and, and and that's and that's so and, and so many people look at that and say, well, I could never do that. And, and you know, and I've had people come up to me, you know, during my cancer journey, and it's like, you know, Tarek, I I could never do what you what you've done. And and you know, sometimes I I, I can be a little bit of a smart aleck, and, and I'll look at them and I'm like, yeah, you're right, you can't because you've already decided in your own mind mm. that you can't do something. Why would you go into something saying I can't? possibly do that. I, I would just recommend you sleep in that morning and get a couple extra hours of sleep because you're going to fail yeah. if you have the mindset of, I, I can't do that. Why, why would you start? Like you said, you started some businesses, you know, and I, I remember the quote from Nelson Mandela, the, the former president of South Africa, who said, I never lose. I either learn or I win. And if you, if you, keep, it, it. If you keep that attitude in mind, it's like, you know, you can fail. And there's actually, I wrote a chapter in my book that's titled Most People Think with Their Fears and Their Insecurities Instead of Using Their Minds. And I know I've done that. I'm like, oh, I wanted to, oh, wait a minute. If I, if I do that, what, maybe I'm not smart enough, or maybe I don't have enough knowledge or information, or what will people think about me if I fail? That's thinking with our fears and our insecurities. That's not thinking with our minds. That's it, man. That's it. And the Mandela quote is perfect. Like, I, as I said to you off air before, I'm about to move overseas and just focus on the business. And people have said, like, what if it, what if it fails? You come back to Australia and you got nothing behind you. Well, no, I've learnt. Obviously, there's some mistakes that I've learnt from. There's all the skills that I've I've adapted as well through through building the business and moving. There's it's that's exactly right. You nailed it. There's no failures. You either learn or you succeed. It's simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a great stoic uh, quote, and I can't remember who it's by, that says, no man ever steps in the same river twice because it's not the same river and he's not the same man. So, mm. you know, yeah, I mean, you, you go, you do something, you learn, you may have, quote unquote, failed or not succeeded, but are you a better human being? Do, do you have new skills? Do, you know, can you apply those to something else down the road? And, and for some reason, people don't see that. They don't see mm. sort of the big picture. They just see the minutiae in front of, oh, I failed. So mm. my life is over. Or I can't do anything. No, did you learn something? 
if you learned something, then it wasn't a failure. That's it. And that's that's what life's about is learning. There's all these experiences that we go through. And it's that's exactly why like multimillionaires, if their business crumbles, they're back into a new business within 12 months. And it's like that quote, the man who says he or the man who believes he can and the man who believes he can't, they're both right. Right. Right? It's all about those beliefs, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. So then moving on to or if we kind of go back, sorry, to your sporting career, uh, you spoke to me before about your brother. You played in the NBA. You obviously played college basketball. You were obviously pursuing to jump into the NBA, were you? Or what was your, I guess, goals around that? Uh, you know, I had three knee surgeries in high school. I was just lucky, fortunate to, you know, be good enough to still play in college. I knew I was never going to play. I mean, it's one thing to play 30 games in a college season. It's another you know, to play 82 games and then playoffs and stuff like that. So there's there's no me- way my knee would have been able, you know, to, to physically handle that. But it was it was just a great opportunity. I actually um, played against Michael Jordan his freshman year in college, my senior year in college. And kind of a funny story, my youngest brother uh, went to the University of Notre Dame, was a pitcher on their, their baseball team and became a, a high school basketball coach and actually coached Michael Jordan's two sons. And he tells a funny story. He said, one day I was at practice, and he said, I, I'm teaching the players a drill, and I look up, and nobody's paying attention to me. And so I look where the players are looking, and, and it was over at the door to come into the gym. And Jordan had come into the gym as a dad. He came in as a dad <laughs> to pick the kids up from practice and take them home. But the kids were, you know, the players were so enamored with him that my brother had to say to him, hey, Michael, you know, you're a little bit of a distraction. Would you mind waiting out in the hall until practice <laughs> was over? And, and Jordan and his wife were incredibly gracious. He was like, I'm really mm. sorry, coach. Absolutely. I'll wait outside till practice is over. And my brother thought after practice, gee, I'm probably the only coach in the history of basketball that ever kicked Michael Jordan out of practice. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny, hey? <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, so... Injuries are, are like I've had my fair share. I've never had three knee surgeries, but they're yeah, they can really destroy careers. Was that a challenging kind of obstacle for you to wrap your head around that that's what was going to hold you back? I, I mean, it was. You know, I remember. You know, I had these knee surgeries, and, and even in high school, I went back. You know, to play basketball, I started playing basketball again, and I remember my my mind, my brain was putting all kinds of negative thoughts into my mind. Things like, you know, hey, you're probably a step slower since your operations and college coaches aren't going to be interested in recruiting you. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, I am still playing at an elite level and college coaches are still reaching out about the possibility of playing for their their college or university. I realized then that I had had to change the narrative. I had to kind of flip the switch. The the Cleveland Clinic, which is a, a healthcare organization here in the United States, did a study, you know, on the mind and, and thoughts and things like that, and and said that on, on any given day that we have sixty to seventy thousand thoughts that pass through our mind, ninety five percent of which are the same thoughts that we had the day before. Which means that on any given day we have roughly thirty five hundred new thoughts, new ideas that that come into our mind. And that our brains operate at a speed of about a thousand words a minute. So think about that. That's that's a whole lot of words. I don't know about you, but I I can't even I can't read that fast. I can't, you know, but your brains, you know, a thousand words a minute. But the bottom line, they said, was your brain can only hold one thought at a time. 
why would you want to make that a negative one? You know, because we all become what we think. So if you think negative, I can't, there's no way, eventually you're going to hardwire your brain to the point where, yeah, you're right. You're not going to be able to do that. So be very careful how you talk to yourself and be very careful of what you let into your brain. A hundred percent. That's a really interesting study. And uh, something that I'm trying to, I guess, wrap my head around or implement a bit is it's pretty challenging to beat your brain with your brain. Like if you're someone who thinks negative and that's your mindset, then you try and fight that with your brain, which is thinking negatively, it's going to be pretty hard to change your thoughts. So do you think that people should go about changing their thoughts with their thoughts or just take action and then work back from that? I, I think it's going to depend on the type of person you are. Let me, let me give you sort of three examples. If you know, There are those people out there. I am not one of these people. There are those people out there that thrive on that negative you know where you know nick you're terrible there's no way you suck there's that you know, i mean mm. all that negative garbage they thrive on that that mm. that lacks like fuel for them and they use that that those negative thoughts to make them better to, to work harder to practice more and things like that then there's another group that's and i i fall into this group where you know if you're a human being you're going to have negative thoughts you know, I don't care how positive you are. I don't see, I don't care how much you see the glasses as half full. From time to time, you are going to experience those negative thoughts. So when that happens, that's okay. Don't, I mean, don't freak out about it. We all have that. But understand when those negative thoughts come into your brain that you need to just change the narrative. And, and, and like I said, you got 60 to 7,000 thoughts a day. You're not going to recognize every one of them. You're not going to pay attention to every one of them. But when you see those negative thoughts, when you, when, oh, that's, you know, that's not good. Mm. Change that. Change it to something, you know, make a conscious effort to put a positive thought into your brain. It's like you said, it's not going to happen overnight. You're not going to turn into, you know, Joe positive just because you you got up one morning. But use those, use those negative thoughts as a way, yes, to, to basically put positive thoughts into your brain. And then the third group are people that are like, oh, wait a minute, I don't want to be like, I'm going to change that negative. They want to get some distance. They're they're uncomfortable with those negative thoughts. So they they kind of step back and it's like, well, we're going to change it or they're going to change it. So it, it's it's not a, and that doesn't work for me either. You know, I, I'm not the mm. person who thrives on negative thoughts and I'm not the person who, who wants some distance. I want those, ne- I want those negative thoughts to be used as a way of, a, as like a catalyst to mm. change my thoughts into something that's more positive. And, and let me give you a quick example. If, if you, if I took a basketball and I went out onto the court and I started to practice free throws, there would be a certain part of my brain that would engage. If we could look at it under an MRI, it would light up. If I thought about taking that basketball and going out onto that court and shooting those free throws, that exact same part of my brain would engage, which is why I always tell people, be very careful how you talk to yourself, whether we like to admit it or not, we all talk to ourselves. Mm. Be very careful how you talk to yourself because, again, we all become what we think. Mm, 100%, man. And like you pretty much summed up, it's the awareness of those negative thoughts. Like people can probably fall into the trap of having those thoughts but thinking they're just normal, thinking the thoughts are just who they are, not recognizing that these are negative, these are not part of who I want to be in my future. And that's probably the biggest roadblock for people is that self-awareness that 
these are the thoughts I'm having. These are thoughts I've had for the last 10, 15 fucking years, but they're not normal for where I want to be. Yeah, they're not helping. Yeah. Yeah. And once you get to that point, that's where you go, okay, flick the switch. Now I need to replace thought A, B, C, and then you can implement the new ones. Exactly. But like you say, it's not it's not gonna, you know, it's not gonna happen overnight. You're not gonna do it today and then tomorrow all of a sudden you're gonna be the most positive person in the world. It takes time. It takes months to change that negative perception into something positive. Exactly. And I've spoken about this with nearly everyone, but there's so much instant gratification now. So people just want that quick fix. They don't they're not willing to recognize that this is gonna take weeks, months, even years. And as soon as I guess the results are pushed out further than 24 hours. People just don't commit. They don't bother because they're not willing to wait and put in the work. And that's why I think it's probably one of the easiest times in history. I can't speak on the past because I'm pretty young, but probably one of the easiest times in history to win because there's a lot of lazy people out there. There, there are. And and there's a there's an entrepreneur here in the United States by the name of Ed Milet, and he talks about the four mm. types of people in the world. And I'll, and I'll give them to you re- real quick. The first group that he talks about are the unmotivated. And he says, that's the vast majority of people in the world. Kind of like what you were just saying, you know, it'd be a great mm-hmm. time to start a business or, you know, be an athlete because so many people aren't willing to put in the work. So the unmotivated, he said, the second group are the motivated, kind of low level, sort of a carrot and stick thing. If I do this, I will get that. It's a life simply based on motivation. But it's also a life that people can, you know, enjoy a very nice life off of. The third group he talks about are the inspirational people. The word inspiration coming from two words in spirit. If you're an inspirational person, you move people with your energy. And then the last group he talks about are the aspirational people where people aspire to be like you. And it's funny when I talk in person and stuff like that, I'll ask people, you know, which group do you fall in? And nobody, not, I mean, if you think the vast majority of people are unmotivated, nobody ever says they're unmotivated. Nobody ever says that. You know, they're either, they're yeah. usually between inspirational and motivated. You know, very few people say they're aspirational. But it, it's like, well, statistically, there's no way you could all be, you know, yeah. not <laughs> unmotivated. I mean, some of you are just unmotivated. That's just the way it is, mm. you know, but nobody sees themselves as that way. 100%. I've, I, I'm very familiar with Ed Milet, but I've never heard of that, I guess, hierarchy. Uh, I guess you could probably, most of the people at the top, the aspirate, no, the inspirational people, aspirational people, they would have started either, either at the motivated or the unmotivated stage and worked their way up. Yep. So that's another example of how people are just full of failures behind them or they have a track of failures behind them and they just work their way up to that success. If you're someone who's motivated, you should be aspiring to get to that aspiration level. Right. Yeah, but that takes work. And like you say, you know, people aren't willing to put in the time. They're not willing to put in the work. And that's why I always say, if, if you have just this much grit in your life, like you say, you can be incredibly successful because all these people that you're competing against, they're just not willing to do it. Yeah, that's it. hundred percent. And while we're on the topic of like that instant versus delayed gratification, I'd love to know your thoughts on this. I think that I don't have a specific number, but maybe 80, 20% should be delayed versus instant gratification. I think if we just opt for delayed gratification all the time, then 
we're not living for anything right now, which could be quite detrimental. But if we're going for instant gratification, well, then your future is fucked. you got nothing to look forward to. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you think there should be a balance? Yeah, I think in anything in life, there there should be a balance. But how do you, you know, how do you callous your mind? You you do things you don't want to do, you know. So, you know, hey, I want to eat that piece of cake. Mm, no, not going to do it. Or maybe a better way, you know, kind of in a balance is I want to eat that piece of cake. No, I'm, I'm going to wait. You know, I'm going to go work out. And then when I come back from working out, I'll mm. eat that piece of cake. You know, it's sort of a, a, a reward for that delayed gratification, which I think is somewhere kind of in the middle and maybe balances that whole philosophy. Mm. But again, going back to, you know, do the things you don't want to do. Yeah, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to the gym. I don't want to get up early. I don't want to eat right. I don't want, I mean, we all have every single day, there's thousands of opportunities for you to do just the opposite in that regard, yeah. which will callous your mind and make you stronger. Such a good point. And it's doing the things you don't want to do, but also not doing the things you want to do. Like you just said, eating the cake. So if you can avoid yeah. those temptations, that's another perfect way to callous your mind. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, moving on again. So your uh, cancer, your sickness, you said you've been battling it for 11 years. Obviously, probably one of the most challenging things anyone could ever go through. What has that taught you about life? Because I'd imagine it would be action-packed with lessons. I, I think one of the things that it's taught me is, well, a couple of things. One, I think we all have a breaking point. But that breaking point is so much further down the road than we ever. We quit. We mm. give up long before we ever we need to. And the other thing I think it's taught me um, is the importance of understanding what you can control and controlling it. And, I, and I'll give you a quick story. I, when I went to college, my college was a military school, um, and we had uh, an admiral, a former admiral in the Navy, who had been a fighter pilot during the Vietnam War in the 1960s and 1970s. And was actually shot down flying a mission over North Vietnam, was a prisoner of war for eight years, was beaten, was tortured, went through some horrible things. And somebody, I, I didn't have a lot of interaction with him. And he was the president of the school. I was just a cadet. But some, I was in an event one time with him and somebody asked him, who survived that brutality? Who survived that abuse? Who survived that torture? And he said, well, let me tell you who didn't survive. He said the people who didn't survive were the big, strong, tough guys who thought that they could handle any kind of abuse or torture. And he said the other group that didn't survive, and this kind of surprised me, he said, were the optimists. These were the people that thought, you know, they were going to be rescued or let go by thanks or uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas or Easter. And then Thanksgiving, Christmas and Easter would come and go and they wouldn't be rescued. And those people would die of a broken heart. He said the people that survived were the people that understood what they could control, which according to him were basically our breathing and the thoughts in our mind and controlled it. He said everything else was the discretion of the enemy. You know, when we ate, when we slept, when we were tortured, when we got mail, when we got medical treatment, everything was at their discretion. So the only thing we could control were the thoughts in our minds and the breathing in our lungs. And I think where people get all excited and where, where, where it kind of breaks down is we try to control things that are way outside of our control. I mean, I can control what I can do. I can't control what you're going to do. I can't control the weather. I can't I can't control so many things, but we want we we want to do that. We want to control everything. And that's where I think all the anxiety, all the depression, you know, all the mental illness that people experience 
is trying to control things that they can't control. One hundred percent. I think that I did a post on this just the other day. If you can focus on what you can control, but simultaneously take responsibility for everything that comes your way, then you hit that sweet spot. Not blaming yourself, not trying to control things you can't control. But if you know, for example, uh, you're getting tortured or you're not in control of when you get your mail or when you go home. You can't control that, but you can still take responsibility for the repercussions of that and deal with, I guess, the emotions or the challenges that that brings up. So, if you can focus on what you control, like you said, your breathing, your thoughts, take responsibility for everything, then all of a sudden you're in that really sweet spot of, I guess, that mental toughness and callousing that mind. I like that. That, that. That's a great way of looking at it. And, and you know, Prisoners of war didn't have nearly as much control as, as, as we do. You know, we, mm. we can control our attitude. We can control our effort. We can control a lot more things that, than they were able to control. So, yeah, understand what you can control and control it and let the rest of the stuff go in terms of, you know, I, I'm, I can't sleep because I'm worried about, you know, whether Bob is going to turn in the report on time. Well, you have no control whether Bob is going to return in the mm. report on time. So why are you losing sleep over something you have absolutely no control over? One hundred percent, and it it is a it's a difficult thing to wrap your head around because when you dive into it, you start thinking, well, okay, maybe if I hassled Bob or if I sent him a text message, well, then I could influence it. Well, you need to work out where you need to let go, where right. you, I guess, let external circumstances or situations take control of what's going on. And where you can influence situations. So it is it is a, a sweet spot that you need to hit, but it just takes practice. It does. You're absolutely right. 100%. So are there any other kind of big things that have stood out throughout your journey of treatment about life that you've, I guess, learned or that the treatment has taught you? Um, yeah. I, I'll give you a quick story. I had a nurse recently ask me, what it was like to have my foot amputated in 2020 or 2018 and then my leg in, in 2020. And what I told her was it, it, it hasn't been easy. I'm still learning how to walk again. You know, when you're, you're six foot eight, falling is not an option. You know, you get kind of get <laughs> right. So, but what I told her was, you know, cancer can take all my physical faculties, but cancer can't touch my mind. It can't touch my heart and it can't touch my soul. And that's who I am. That's who you are, Nick. That's who everybody's mm -hmm. listening to us really is. And I'm not saying, you know, don't go to the gym, don't eat right, don't get enough rest, don't reduce your stress. I'm not telling you to do that. But we spend a lot of time on this, this body, this vessel, this house that holds who we really are, our heart, our mind, and our soul. So what I am suggesting is, in addition to working on your body, spend a little time every day working on your heart, your mind, and your soul. I look at those things as things that are eternal. You know, our body's going to die. It's going to decay. It's going to be gone. But your heart, your mind, your soul, the things you do with those, those uh, entities are things that will last forever or that can last forever. Mm -hmm. So spend time every day. And we, we don't do that. We don't spend time working on the things of who we really are. We, we spend a lot of time on the external and not not a lot of time on the internal. And I think at the end of your life, as someone who's older and has cancer and is probably coming to the end of his life, it's it's not those things that you 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 did. It's not those things that you got. Let me let me end it kind of with this story. I think we all feel that we're born empty and that our job, 
once we, you know, get out, you know, we grow up and get out of school and kind of get into life, that our job is to fill ourselves up. You know, I've got to get a good education. I've got to get a good job. I've got to, you know, drive a nice car, have a nice family, you know, live in a big house. All that's, we start to consume. We start to fill ourselves up. We start to get stuff. But I, what I've come to understand is it's not what we get. It's what we give. So instead of mm-hmm. thinking you're born empty, look at it like, no, you're born full. You're born with everything you need to be successful in life already inside of you. And your job in life should be, instead of consuming, should be to empty yourself out for the betterment of yourself, your family, your community, your God, whatever you believe. And if you look at life that way, it sort of turns on, hey, it's not all about me. It's not what I can get. It's what I can give. That's awesome, man. That's such a really cool lesson to share with everyone. I uh, Yeah, that's. I can't imagine what that journey for you would have been like across the last 11 years, the treatment, the cancer, the amputations. It, yeah, you're an inspiration to many, I imagine. You've shared some incredible lessons. I appreciate you coming on. If people want to find you, get in contact with you, where can they go? Yeah, I have a blog called Motivational Check. Uh, every day I put up a thought for the day. And with that thought comes a question about maybe how you could apply that into your life. I have recommendations for books to read, videos to watch. You can uh, get access to my book and you can also leave me a message. That's all at motivationalcheck.com. Awesome, man. Thanks again. Appreciate your time. You've absolutely nailed it today. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate it. That's it, man. Thanks for listening to another installment of Man Talk on the Positive Masculinity Podcast. I hope and I trust that you've learned something valuable that will help you become not only the best, the most powerful, but the most fulfilled man you can possibly be. Now, as I said earlier, I've recently launched the most powerful men's network there is online called the Men's Inner Circle, where every single week we jump on a group video call with all of the guys involved. We discuss everything ranging from mental health, physical health, relationships and finances to nutrition, diet, sleep, communication, relationships and everything in between. So if you want to be a part of one of the most powerful and supportive men's networks there are, jump on to www.bettermindsbody.com.au forward slash the men's inner circle or you can just click the link in the show description. And the best part of all, it is literally cheaper than having a meal out at the pub once a week. So if you want to be a part of this network, hit that link and I can't wait to see you inside. Have a killer day, gents.